Survivor 46 is here, and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast, and we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Vyadaris, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcasts. the London Visited podcast on your favourite podcast provider, bringing to you the facts, history and information about different parts of this great capital. If you have been to London, are planning on visiting, live here or just love London from afar, then this is the podcast for you. Hi, I'm Steve and welcome to our podcast. We're here for all things London and to tell you more behind some of the iconic places and people in London's history. In this episode, we go back to the Palace of Westminster for our part three or four and our look at the whole area and the building on that north bank of the Thames. Don't forget to visit and subscribe to our YouTube channel, London Visited, to see videos covering this place and so many others across London. Also, if you love the podcast and the channel, why not join us as a member? Join our group of what we like to call our London Visited Crown Jewels, where there are many different benefits, including a members-only monthly podcast. Have a look by going to patreon.com forward slash London Visited. And now to this week's podcast. Immediately north of the robing room is the Royal Gallery. At 33.5 by 13.7 metres, 110 by 45 feet, it is one of the largest rooms in the palace. Its main purpose is to serve as the stage of the Royal Procession at state openings of Parliament, which the audience watch from temporary tiered seating on both sides of the route. It has also been used on occasion by visiting statesmen from abroad when addressing both Houses of Parliament, as well as receptions in honour of foreign dignitaries, and more regularly for the Lord Chancellor's breakfast. In the past, it was the theatre of several trials of peers in the House of Lords. Documents from the Parliamentary Archives are on display in the Royal Gallery, including a facsimile of Charles I's death warrant, and the tables and seating offer a workspace for members of the Lords that is conveniently close to their debating chamber. The decorative scheme of the Royal Gallery was meant to display important moments in British military history, and the walls are decorated by two large paintings by Daniel McLeese, each measuring 13.7 by 3.7 metres, 45 by 12 feet. The Death of Nelson, depicting Lord Nelson's demise at the Battle of Trafalgar in 1805, and the meeting of Wellington and Blücher after the Battle of Waterloo, showing the Duke of Wellington meeting Gerhard Lebret von Belcher at the Battle of Waterloo in 1815. The murals deteriorated rapidly after their completion due to a range of factors, most importantly atmospheric pollution, and today they are almost monochrome, although a finished study of the death of Nelson in better condition hangs at the Walker Art Gallery in Liverpool. The rest of the planned frescoes were cancelled, and the walls are filled with portraits of kings and queens from George I onwards. Another decorative element with military undertones are the eight statues of gilded Kayon stone that flank the three doorways in the bay window of the gallery sculpted by John Burney Philip. Each depicts a monarch during whose reign a key battle or war took place. They are Alfred the Great and William the Conqueror, Richard I and Edward III, Henry V and Elizabeth I, William III and Anne. The panelled ceiling, 13.7 metres, 45 foot above the floor, features Tudor roses and lions, and the stained glass windows show the coats of arms of the kings of England and Scotland. The Prince's Chamber is a small anteroom, between the Royal Chamber and the Lord's Chamber, named after the room adjoining the Parliamentary Chamber in the Old Palace of Westminster. Thanks to its location, 
It is a place where members of the Lords meet to discuss business of the House. Several doors lead out of the room to the division lobbies of the House of Lords and to a number of important offices. The theme of the Prince's Chamber is Tudor history, and 28 oil paintings painted on panels around the room depict members of the Tudor dynasty. They are the work of Richard Burchett and his pupils, and their creation entailed extensive research, which contributed to the founding of the National Portrait Gallery in 1856. Twelve bronze bias reliefs are set into the wall below the portraits, executed by William Theed in 1855-1857. Scenes included are the Field of Cloth of Gold, the Escape of Mary, Queen of Scots, and Raleigh spreading his cloak as a carpet for the Queen. Above the portraits, at window level, there are copies of six of the ten Armada tapestries, which hung in the chamber of the House of Lords until their destruction in the 1834 fire and depicted the defeat of the Spanish Armada in 1588. The project was put on hold in 1861, by which time only one painting had been completed and was not revived until 2007. As of August 2010, all six paintings are now in their intended places. The room also contains a statue of Queen Victoria, seated on a throne, itself placed on a pedestal and holding a scepter and laurel crown, which shows that she both governs and rules. This figure is flanked by allegorical statues of justice and clemency, the former with a bare sword and the inflexible expression and the latter showing sympathy and offering an olive branch. The sculptural ensemble, made of white marble and carved by John Gibson in 1855, reaches 2.44 meters, 8 feet in height. Its size has long been considered out of proportion with the fittings of the prince's chamber, and the flanking statues ended up in storage between 1955 and 1976. However, the size and location of the group in the archway opposite the doors to the Royal Gallery, which are removed before the state openings of Parliament to facilitate the Royal Procession, indicate that it was meant to be seen from a distance and to symbolically remind the monarch of their royal duties as they would walk down the Royal Gallery on their way to deliver their speech. The Chamber of the House of Lords is located in the southern part of the Palace of Westminster. The lavishly decorated room measures 13.7 by 24.4 metres. 45 by 80 feet. The benches in the chamber, as well as other furnishings in the Lord's side of the palace, are coloured red. The upper part of the chamber is decorated by stained glass windows and by six allegorical frescoes representing religion, chivalry and law. At the south end of the chamber are the ornate gold canopy and throne. Although the sovereign may theoretically occupy the throne during any sitting, he or she attends only the state opening of parliament. Other members of the royal family who attend the state opening use chairs of state next to the throne, and Pierre's sons are always entitled to sit on the steps of the throne. In front of the throne is the wool sack, an armless red cushion stuffed with wool, representing the historical importance of the wool trade, and used by the officer presiding over the house, the Lord Speaker, since 2006, but historically the Lord Chancellor or a deputy. The house's mace, which represents royal authority, is placed on the back of the wool sack, in front of the woolsack is the judge's woolsack, a larger red cushion that used to be occupied during the state opening by the law lords, who were members of the House of Lords and respectively by the Supreme Court justices and other judges, whether or not members, to represent the judicial branch of government. The table of the House, at which the clerks sit, is in front. Members of the House occupy red benches on three sides of the chamber. The benches on the Lord Speaker's right from the spiritual side and those to his left from the temporal side. The Lord's side, archbishops and bishops of the established Church of England, all occupy the spiritual side. The Lord's temporal, 
nobles sit according to party affiliation. Members of the government party sit on the spiritual side, while those of the opposition sit on the temporal side. Some peers who have no party affiliation sit on the benches in the middle of the house, opposite the sack. They are accordingly known as crossbenchers. The Lord's Chamber is the site of nationally televised ceremonies, the most important of which is the state opening of Parliament, which is held formally to open each annual parliamentary session, either after a general election or in the autumn. At this occasion, every constitutional element of the government is represented, the Crown, both literally and figuratively in the person of the Sovereign, the Lords Spiritual and Temporal, and the Commons, who together form the Legislature, the Judiciary, although no judges are members of either House of Parliament, and the Executive, both government ministers and ceremonial military units in attendance on the Sovereign, and a large number of guests are invited to attend in the large Royal Gallery, immediately outside the chamber. The Sovereign, seated on the throne, delivers the speech from the throne, outlining the government's programme for the year and legislative agenda for the forthcoming parliamentary session. The Commons may not enter the Lord's debating floor. Instead, they watch the proceedings from beyond the bar of the House, just inside the door. A small, purely formal ceremony is held to end each parliamentary session, when the Sovereign is merely represented by a group of Lords Commissioners. Following the Blitz, which destroyed the Chamber of the House of Commons, the Lord's Chamber was occupied by the Commons. The Lords temporarily used the robing room during the Reconstruction. The state opening of Parliament was carried out as normal, with the new rooms being used. Evidence can still be seen to this day, with damage clearly visible on one of the doors where they were struck by Black Rod. Directly north of the Lord's Chamber lies the Peers' Lobby, an antechamber where Lords can informally discuss or negotiate matters during sittings of the House, as well as collect messages from the doorkeepers, who control access to the chamber. The lobby is a square room measuring 12 metres, 39 feet on each side, and 10 metres, 33 feet in height. And one of the main features is the floor centrepiece, a radiant Tudor rose made of Derbyshire marbles and set within an octagon of engraved brass plates. The rest of the floor is paved with encaustic tiles, featuring heraldic designs and Latin mottos. The walls are faced with a white stone, and each is pierced by a doorway. Above the arches are displayed the arms representing the six royal dynasties which ruled England until Queen Victoria's reign – Saxon, Norman, Plantagenet, Tudor, Stuart and Hanoverian. And between them there are windows stained with the arms of the early aristocratic families of England. Of the doorways, the one to the south, which leads to the Lord's Chamber, is the most magnificent and sports much gilding and decoration, including the full royal arms. It is enclosed by the brass gates. A pair of elaborately pierced and studded doors together weighing 1.5 tons. The side doors, which feature clocks, open into corridors. To the east extends the Law Lords Corridor, which leads to the libraries, and nearby to the west lies the Moses Room, used for grand committees. To the north is the vaulted Piers Corridor, which is decorated with eight murals by Charles West Cope, depicting historical scenes from the period around the English Civil War. The frescoes were executed between 1856 and 1866, and each scene was specifically chosen to depict the struggles through which national liberties were won. Examples include Speaker asserting the privileges of the Commons against Charles I, when the attempt was made to seize the five members, representing resistance against absolute rule, and the embarkation of the Pilgrim Fathers for New England, which illustrates the principle of freedom of worship. Originally named Octagon Hall because of its shape, the central lobby is the heart of the Palace of Westminster, it lies directly below the central tower 
forms a busy crossroads between the House of Lords to the south, the House of Commons to the north, St Stephen's Halls and the public entrance to the west, and the lower waiting hall, and the libraries to the east. Its location, halfway between the two debating chambers, has led constitutional theorist Erskine May to describe the lobby as the political centre of the British Empire, and allows a person standing under the great chandelier to see both the royal throne and the speaker's chair, provided that all the intervening doors are open. Constituents may meet their members of parliament here, even without an appointment, and this practice is the origin of the term lobbying. The hall is also the theatre of the speaker's procession, which passes here on its way to the Commons Chamber before every sitting of the House. The central lobby measures 18 metres, 59 feet across, and 23 metres, 75 feet, from the floor to the centre of the vaulted ceiling. The panels between the vaulted ribs are covered with Venetian glass mosaic, displaying floral emblems and heraldic badges, and the bosses in the intersections of the ribs are also carved into heraldic symbols. Each wall of the lobby is contained in an arch ornamented with statues of English and Scottish monarchs. On four sides there are doorways, and the tympana above them are adorned with mosaics representing the patron saints of the United Kingdom constituent nations, St George for England, St Andrew for Scotland, St David for Wales, and St Patrick for Ireland. The other four arches are occupied by high windows, under which there are stone screens. The hall's post office, one of the two in the palace, is located behind one of these screens. In front of them stand four bigger-than-life statues of 19th-century statesmen, including one of four-time Prime Minister William Gladstone. The floor on which they stand is tarred with Minton and Caustic tiles in intricate patterns and includes a passage from Psalm 127 written in Latin, which translates as follows, Except the Lord built the house, their labour is but lost that built it. The east corridor leads from the central lobby to the lower waiting hall, and its six panels remained blank until 1910, when they were filled with scenes from Tudor history. They were all paid for by liberal peers, and each was the work of a different artist. But uniformity was achieved between the frescoes, thanks to a common colour palette of red, black and gold, and a uniform height for the depicted characters. One of the scenes is probably not historical, plucking the red and white roses in the old temple gardens, depicting the origin of these flowers as emblems from the houses of Lancaster and York, respectively, was taken from Shakespeare's play Henry VI, Part I. Continuing north from the central lobby is the Commons Corridor. It is of almost identical design to its southern counterpart, and is decorated with scenes of 17th century political history between the Civil War and the Revolution of 1688. They were painted by Edward Matthew Ward, and include subjects like Monk declaring for a free parliament, and the Lords and Commons presenting the crown to William III and Mary II in the banqueting hall. Then, mirroring the arrangement of the Lords part of the palace, is another antechamber, the Members' Lobby. In this room, Members of Parliament hold discussions and negotiations and are often interviewed by accredited journalists, collectively known as the Lobby. The room is similar to the Peers' Lobby, but plainer in design and slightly larger, forming a cube, 13.7 metres 45 feet on all sides. After the heavy damage it sustained in the 1941 bombing, it was rebuilt in a simplified style, something most evident on the floor, which is almost completely unadorned. The archway of the door leading to the Commons Chamber has been left unrepaired as a reminder of the evils of war, and is now known as the Rubble Arch, or Churchill Arch. It is flanked by bronze statues of Winston Churchill and David Lloyd George, the Prime Ministers who led Britain through the Second and First World War respectively. 
A foot of each is conspicuously shiny, a result of a long tradition of MPs rubbing them for good luck on their way in before their maiden speech. The lobby contains the busts and statues of most 20th century prime ministers, as well as two large boards where MPs can receive letters and telephone messages, designed for the use of the House and installed in the early 1960s. The chamber of the House of Commons is at the northern end of the Palace of Westminster. It was opened in 1950, after the Victorian chamber had been destroyed in 1941 and rebuilt under the architect Giles Gilbert Scott. The chamber measures 14 by 20.7 metres, 46 by 68 foot, and is plainer in style than the Lord's Chamber. The benches, as well as other furnishings in the common side of the palace, are coloured green. Members of the public are forbidden to sit on the benches. Other parliaments in the Commonwealth nations, including those of India, Canada, Australia and New Zealand, have copied the colour scheme under which the lower house is associated with green and the upper house with red. At the northern end of the chamber is the Speaker's Chair, a present to Parliament from the Commonwealth of Australia. The current British Speaker's Chair is an exact copy of the Speaker's Chair given to Australia by the House of Commons to celebrate the opening of the old Parliament House, Canberra. In front of the Speaker's Chair is the table of the House, at which the clerks sit and on which is placed the common ceremonial mace. The table was a gift from Canada. The dispatch boxes, which front bench members of Parliament, MPs, often lean on or rest their notes on during questions and speeches, are a gift from New Zealand. There are green benches on either side of the House. Members of the government party occupy benches on the Speaker's right, while those of the opposition occupy benches on the Speaker's left. There are no cross benches as in the House of Lords. The chamber is relatively small and can accommodate only 427 of the 650 members of Parliament. During Prime Minister's questions and in major debates, MPs stand at either end of the House. By tradition, the British Sovereign does not enter the chamber of the House of Commons. The last monarch to do so was King Charles I in 1642. The King sought to arrest five members of Parliament on charges of high treason, but when he asked the Speaker, William Lethal, if he had any knowledge of the whereabouts of these individuals, Lethal famously replied, May it please your Majesty, I have neither eyes to see nor tongue to speak in this place, but as the House is pleased to direct me, whose servant I am here. Since then, in the state opening of Parliament, when Black Rod representing the monarch approaches the doors to the chamber of the House of Commons to make the summons, the doors are pointedly slammed in his or her face. Black Rod has to strike the door three times with the staff to be admitted and issue the summons from the monarch to the MPs to attend. When repairs after the World War II bombing were completed, the rebuilt chamber was opened by King George VI on the 26th of October 1950. He was invited to an unofficial tour of the new structure by Commons leaders. The two red lines on the floor of the House of Commons are 2.5 metres, 8 foot 2 inches apart which, by tradition, is intended to be just over two sword lengths. It is said that the original purpose of this was to prevent disputes in the House from degenerating into duels. However, there is no record of a time when members of Parliament were allowed to bring swords into the chamber. Historically, only the sergeant-at-arms has been allowed to carry a sword as a symbol of their role in Parliament, plus black rod, when summoning the Commons to the Lords. And there are loops of pink ribbon in the members' cloakroom for MPs to hang their swords before entering the chamber. In the days when gentlemen carried swords, there were no lines in the chamber. Protocol dictates that MPs may not cross these lines when speaking. A member of parliament who violates this convention will be lambasted by opposition members. Westminster Hall, the oldest existing part of the Palace of Westminster, was erected in 1097 by King William II, 
William Rufus, at which point it was the largest hall in Europe. The roof was probably originally supported by pillars, giving three aisles, but during the reign of King Richard II, this was replaced by a hammer beam roof by the royal carpenter Hugh Hownold. The greatest creation of medieval timber architecture, which allowed the original three aisles to be replaced with a single huge open space, with a dais at the end. The new roof was commissioned in 1393. Richard's master builder Henry Yeville retained the original dimensions, refacing the walls with 15 life-size statues of kings placed in niches. The rebuilding had been begun by King Henry III in 1245, but by Richard's time it had been dormant for over a century. In Westminster Hall, the favourite heraldic badge of Richard II, a white heart, chained and in an attitude of rest, is repeated 83 times, without any of them being an exact copy of another. The largest clear span medieval roof in England, Westminster Hall's roof, measures 20.7 by 73.2 metres, 68 by 240 feet. Oak timbers for the roof came from the Royal Woods in Hampshire and from parks in Hertfordshire and from that of William Crozier of Stoke de Auburn, who supplied over 600 oaks in Surrey. Among other sources, they were assembled near Farnham, Surrey, 56 kilometres, 35 miles away. Accounts record the large number of wagons and barges which delivered the jointed timbers to Westminster for assembly. Westminster Hall has served numerous functions. Until the 19th century, it was regularly used for the judicial purposes housing three of the most important courts in the land, the Court of King's Bench and the Court of Common Pleas and the Court of Chancery. In the reign of Henry II, 1154 to 89, a royal decree established a fixed sitting of judges in the hall. In 1215, the Magna Carta stipulated that these courts would sit regularly in the hall for the convenience of litigants. In 1875, the courts were amalgamated into the High Court of Justice, which continued to have chambers adjacent to Westminster Hall until then moved along to the new Royal Courts of Justice building in 1882. In addition to regular courts, Westminster Hall also housed important state trials, including impeachment trials and the state trials of King Charles I at the end of the English Civil War, William Wallace, Thomas More, Cardinal John Fisher, Guy Fawkes, the Earl of Strafford, the rebel Scots Lords of the 1715 and 1745 uprisings, and Warren Hastings. The St Stephen's porch end of the hall displays under the stained glass window of the Parliamentary War Memorial, listing on eight panels the names of members and staff of both Houses of Parliament and their sons killed serving in the First World War. The window itself, installed in 1952, commemorates members and staff of both Houses who died in the Second World War. In 2012, a new stained glass window commemorating Queen Elizabeth's Second Diamond Jubilee was installed opposite this window, at the other end of the hall. Westminster Hall has also served ceremonial functions. From the 12th century to the 19th, coronation banquets honouring the new monarchs were held here. The last coronation banquet of that was King George IV, held in 1821. His successor, William IV, abandoned the idea because he deemed it too expensive. The hall has been used as a place for lying in state during state and ceremonial funerals. Such an honour is usually reserved for the sovereign and their consorts, the only non-royals to receive it in the 20th century were Frederick Slay Roberts, 1st Earl Roberts, 1914, and the 48 victims of the crash of the airship R101 in 1930, and Winston Churchill, 1965. In 1910, the hall was used as a laying in state of King Edward VII, followed by King George V in 1936, King George VI in 1952, Queen Mary in 1953, Queen Elizabeth the Queen Mother in 2002, 
and Queen Elizabeth II in 2022. Around 250,000 mourners filed past the coffin, which resulted in the delamination of the Yorkstone floor. The two houses have presided ceremonial addresses to the Crown in Westminster Hall on important public occasions. For example, addresses were presented at the Queen Elizabeth II Silver Jubilee 1977, Golden Jubilee 2002 and Diamond Jubilee 2012, the accession of Charles III 2022 and the 300th anniversary of the Glorious Revolution 1988 and the 50th anniversary at the end of the Second World War in 1995. It is considered a rare privilege for a foreign leader to be invited to address both Houses of Parliament in Westminster Hall. Since the Second World War, the only leaders to have done so have been French President Charles de Gaulle in 1960, South African President Nelson Mandela in 1996, Pope Benedict XVI in 2010, US President Barack Obama in 2011, Burmese opposition leader Aung San Suu Kyi in 2012, and Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky in 2023. President Obama was the first US president to be invited to use the hall for an address to parliament. And Aung San Suu Kyi was the first non-head of state to be given the accolade of addressing MPs and peers in Westminster Hall. Following reforms in 1999, the House of Commons now uses the Grand Committee Room next to Westminster Hall as an additional debating chamber. Although it is not part of the main hall, these are usually spoken of as Westminster Hall debates. In contrast with the two main chambers, in which the government and opposition benches directly face each other, the seating in the Grand Committee Room is laid out in a U-shape, a pattern meant to reflect the non-partisan nature of the debates there. So, I hope you've enjoyed our third look at Westminster Hall. We have our fourth next week, where we'll look at other parts of the building, including various incidents that have taken place at the Palace of Westminster since its time there. Don't forget, if you'd like to make contact with us or suggest any places you'd like us to feature in future podcasts, you can let me know through our website, londonvisited.co.uk, or through our social media. It's that easy. And also, whilst you're there, why not sign up for our email list, where we'll send you an email with what's going on in London and at London Visited each and every month. Thanks for listening. Really hope you enjoyed our podcast, and we'll see you soon on the next one. Bye. Thanks for listening and please don't forget to subscribe to get more shows direct to your device. Also, why not visit our London Visited YouTube channel to get even more of London. Catch you soon on the next one.